Um, hey, I'm Jamie Borchick. I'm a teaching pastor here at Park. Uh, it's great to have you with us this morning. Um, if you're visiting with us, we love having you here. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the back. That's our gift to you, so grab one of those on your way out. Uh, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, so you can find that. And uh, if you are new here to Park, if maybe you visited last week for Easter, or maybe this is the first time you've been at church in a while, um, what we typically do is we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, We take God's word kind of verse by verse and we walk through books of the Bible because we believe the whole counsel, the fullness of God's word is necessary for God's people. And so uh, the last week we took a break from this for Easter, but we've been in a series where we're preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We've been taking this and walking through it for uh, since the fall. And uh, over the last several weeks we've been been in chapters 12 through 14. Chapters 12 through 14. And these chapters are all about spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts might be unfamiliar for some of us. So let me give you a little background here on this idea of spiritual gifts. When you believe in Jesus, when you put your faith in Christ, you become a follower of Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit into your life. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is personal. He is not a, an it. He is a he. And uh, he's a person. So this is, we're not talking about the force in Star Wars. We're talking about a person, the third person of the Trinity. And when you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life. He moves into your heart. He lives inside of you. And he, he, uh, he lives inside of you to help you live the life that God created you and called you to live. And when you believe, not only does he take up residence in your life, But he also gives you gifts that you can use then to serve God's people and to serve God in the rest of your life. Now, who here's into home improvement projects? I'm not talking like you like watching HGTV and seeing Chip Gaines do home improvement projects. I'm saying who likes doing home improvement projects yourself? Okay, a few people, a few people. Okay, some of you are, some of you are like, no, I know I will hire somebody, but some of you like doing this yourself. So I have here this morning a couple uh, things with me. I brought, brought a few tools, okay? Now, uh, this one, this one here, this is, anybody know what this is? Help me out here. Screwdriver, you're doing great so far. You're doing great so far. So this is a screwdriver, okay? So screwdriver, so this is a tool, and this is a very handy tool. This comes in handy whenever you need to, like, screw something in or screw something out. It's very useful. Now, I'm grateful for screwdrivers. You need them often. But the usefulness of a screwdriver is somewhat limited. If I'm trying to do a big project... I don't want to rely on a screwdriver. Like say I'm trying to hang drywall in a, in, a, in, a, in a space, in a basement or in a room in my house, trying to hang drywall. I don't want to use a screwdriver to do that. It's going to take way too long. It's going to be too much work. Not going to be fun. So for that kind of project, I need something a little more powerful. And this here is probably my favorite tool that I own. Anybody know what this is? It's a lot of things. Yes, it's a lot of things. And uh, this thing is super helpful. So I can use it to screw things in and out. But I can also change out the bit and I can use it to drill holes into things. I can, uh, I, can, I can press this button here and this whole attachment comes off. And I can replace this with a saw that attaches on here or even with a, um, a power sander, which is, comes in handy. So uh, this thing is super useful for a lot of different purposes. And I'm glad that I have this tool. When I need a bigger job done, this comes in handy. Now, one thing I could do with this is I could take it outside and I could play with it. I could go... That's kind of fun, isn't it? You can just rev the engine, play with it. This morning I was kind of prepping for this and my, the drill was sitting out in Archer. My, my three-year-old came over and he was like, ooh, ooh, ooh. That, yeah, hear the noise. Yeah, it's fun, right? You like that? You like the noise? Okay, 
So I can do that with this. I can do that. That's an option. But uh, that is not the purpose of this power tool. What is the purpose of this power tool? Why does this exist? It's for the purpose of construction. It's for the purpose of building things. And y'all, the spiritual gifts that you get when you believe in Jesus, they're like power tools for the Christian life. They're power tools for the Christian life. They're gifts that are given to believers by God for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. And this passage that we're about to read then is all about power tools and how to use them rightly. So with that framework in place, let's read this morning. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're starting verse 1. It's the word of the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, How will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, 
And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This passage, there's a lot going on in here today, a lot of unfamiliar, kind of confusing things. And I pray that you would help us today to hear what you would say to us through this. Would you speak now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this text, we meet two spiritual gifts, two power tools that have caused much confusion in the church for a very long time. Tongues and prophecy. And clearly, from the length of Paul's treatment of this subject here, these gifts were causing problems in the church in Corinth in the first century. And in all truthfulness, these gifts have continued to cause problems in the church for much of church history ever since. So there are some Christians who are known as cessationists who hold that these gifts have ceased. They have stopped. They're no longer active in the church today. And there are others who are known as continuationists who hold that these gifts are still alive and active. I'm going to put my cards on the table here right at the outset. I am a continuationist. I believe the Holy Spirit still gives these gifts to God's people in the church right now today in real life. Now, I am not a continuationist because of my own experiences. I did not grow up in a church context where anyone practiced these particular gifts, nor have I ever been a member of a church where these gifts were prominently exercised, where they were kind of featured. Furthermore, I do not personally have any of these gifts uh, to my own knowledge. Like, I've never spoken in tongues. I've never prophesied. As far as I know, I've never performed a miracle. So I am not a continuationist because of my own experiences. But I am a continuationist. And the reason I am a continuationist is because of the Bible. Because of passages like this one, and like 1 Corinthians 13 that we looked at a few weeks ago. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at the Bible with you. And my aim is to bring some clarity to what is often very confusing surrounding these gifts. So this chapter that I just read, this is the longest and clearest teaching in the Bible on the gifts of prophecy and tongues. You may have never heard a sermon on this stuff before, and so I hope this morning that as we dive into it, it's really helpful for you. And in our text, the first paragraph of what Paul writes lays out his general argument. Everything else in this chapter is support and application of what he says in the first paragraph. And let's, so let's start by breaking down the first paragraph in the passage. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul begins with a command. He says, pursue love. And this links back to chapter 13, where a few weeks ago, Paul reminded us that love is greater than any and every power tool in existence. Like love is primary. Love comes first. And Paul's commanding us here, pursue love, go after love. That's first. But then Paul continues with another command. He says, earnestly desire, which means strive after, like chase this thing. You should really want this. So he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And this is the second time in this section of the letter that Paul has given this particular command. If you look back at the end of chapter 12 in verse 31, Paul said, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then if you keep reading to the very end of chapter 14, in verse 39, he finishes this whole section by saying it again. He says, earnestly desire to prophesy. So Paul three times commands this earnest desire, this striving after particular spiritual gifts. So Paul's serious about this. And the particular power tool he's telling us to chase after is prophecy. 
And so we need to pause here for a second to define what this is. What is prophecy? Well, when most of us think of prophecy, what we think of is predictions of the future, like Nostradamus or something. And biblical prophecy does sometimes include predictions of the future. That's an element of it. But prophecy is not merely or mainly about predicting the future. Prophecy is primarily about encouraging and exhorting God's people. So here's a helpful definition that comes from Sam Storms, who's a pastor and theologian. Prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. Prophecy is the human report of a divine revelation. And he elaborates, he says, prophecy is the speaking forth in merely human words, something that the Holy Spirit has spontaneously, has sovereignly and often spontaneously revealed to a believer. Now it's important to note here that not all, he's talking about revelation from God here. And it's important to note that not all revelation from God is on the same level as this revelation from God. The Bible is God's inerrant and authoritative book. As, as believers in Christ, as, as a Reformation people, even we stand under the authority of this book. We look to this book as our authority. We stand beneath it. This is our final, our ultimate authority. This book is inerrant. It's authoritative. And the kind of prophecy that Paul is talking about today is different from this. It's not on this level. It's a human report, so it's, it's fallible in the sense that it's people kind of relaying what, God, what, what the Spirit has revealed to them. So it's not on the same level as Scripture. Rather, it is more occasion and situation focused. It's not about passing on doctrine or authoritative commands from God. Rather, and you can look at verse 3 here to see this, prophecy is about providing upbuilding and encouragement and consolation for God's people. It's spoken into unique situations and circumstances, and it's a means that God uses to build character, to strengthen his people, and to comfort us in difficult times. Now, I have not often experienced this in my own life, but I will share one personal example with you. I became a Christian when I was in college, and shortly thereafter, it was between my sophomore and junior years when I became a believer in Christ. And shortly thereafter, I think it was during my junior year, there was a guy who was a little bit older than me in school who came to me and he said, hey, I have a prophetic word for you. And I was intrigued by that. I wasn't, I didn't grow up in this world, wasn't familiar with this. And so I was intrigued. And and I don't remember all the details of what he said, but I do remember the gist of it. And the gist of it is, is he came to me and he was saying, God wants you to be a spiritual leader. God wants you to be a spiritual leader. Now, as a young Christian who was just kind of beginning this journey with Christ, that word from him was incredibly encouraging and it gave me a lot of confidence as I stepped into different ministry leadership opportunities. And here I am today, I'm standing up here and I'm leading spiritually, I'm still doing it. And that was a huge blessing to me very early on in my faith and it gave me kind of some wings to sail on as I stepped into this kind of stuff. So that's one example from my own life. Now I've also experienced uh, the flip side of of this kind of thing. Um, I once had a female friend who I knew had a big crush on me. And that affection was not reciprocated. I wasn't interested in her, but I knew that she was interested in me. And she had this mentor who was a, who was a woman who, who was very into this kind of spiritual realm. And uh, that mentor sent, sent me a prophecy where she told me that God had said that this girl and I would be yoked together for a lifetime. Now, her name was not Kinsey, And so I'm fairly confident today that that was what you might call a false prophecy, okay? So with prophecy, with New Testament prophecy, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. 
The New Testament gift of prophecy is not, thus saith the Lord, 100% factual and errant, Bible-level revelation. It's not on that level. What it is, is it's spirit-directed, people-building words that are spoken into specific situations and circumstances for the purpose of upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. And as Paul says later in chapter 14, in verse 29, for that reason, it always needs to be weighed. It needs to be evaluated to see whether this is from God or not. So I want to help you out with evaluating prophecy here by giving you three questions you can ask whenever someone offers a prophetic word. So if you hear someone saying, hey, I'm a prophet or, or this is a prophecy, if you hear that language or you hear someone doing something like this, these are three questions you can ask to help evaluate. First one, does it contradict what God has said clearly in the Bible? This book is God's authoritative word. Anything else that anyone says, it needs to come under this authority. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, God told me to divorce my wife. Well, let's look at the Bible. Let's see what it says. Because the Bible actually speaks to that situation. Okay? Second, does it match what God is already doing in your life? As you're following Christ, does it line up with your desires? Does it line up with your direction? Does it line up where God's already at work within you? Like if someone says, hey, you and this girl are going to be together forever, you can say, well, are you interested? If the answer is no, might be an indication this isn't from the Lord. Okay? And then third, does it glorify God or does it glorify the prophet? Who benefits from this prophecy? Is it self-serving or does it serve others? Does it build up others? So Paul commands us here in verse 1, to earnestly desire that we might prophesy. And church, we need more of this in our community. We need more of this in our community. We need the upbuilding and encouragement and consolation that prophecy offers. And Paul here is commanding this. He's not saying this is optional. It's like an extra thing. He's actually commanding it. He's saying you need to do this. So it's not optional. It's essential. We need this power tool. And so the application for you and I of of verse 1 here is to earnestly desire it, to actually want this, to put it on your wish list, say, God, give me this kind of thing. I want this. Now, in verse 2, Paul introduces a contrast between prophecy and another gift, that of speaking in tongues. And what are tongues? It's another one that can be kind of confusing. Well, you can go to the internet and you can find all kinds of crazy videos with people speaking in tongues. It usually looks like people are just kind of speaking gibberish. But y'all, we are Bible people. I've been saying that this morning, emphasizing that. And rather than looking to the internet, what we want to do when we think about tongues is we want to look to the Bible itself and see what does the Bible say about this? And so what does the Bible say about tongues? Well, the word tongues itself is just the standard Greek word for languages. So tongues are languages, but they're not merely languages. Look at verse 2. One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. So we're dealing with some kind of prayer language here. This is a conversation. Someone is talking with God, speaking with God. And Paul continues. He says, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. So these are not normal human languages because no one understands them. So this isn't English or Spanish or Farsi or Mandarin Chinese. These are not normal human languages. Now, some of you right now, you're thinking about Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, all the apostles, they start speaking in other languages, right? 
where, and there's people from all over the world gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and they understand them because they're speaking actual human languages. And that happened historically for the purpose of all those people from all over the world hearing the gospel message in their own native tongue. That was something God did at Acts 2. But what Paul's describing here is something different. This is quite clearly a type of prayer language. This is a means by which a believer talks with God. And the content of the speech is mysteries in the spirit. Now that word mysteries, it it implies some kind of transcendent connection with God. So when this is happening, the speaker is experiencing a deep, profound, supernatural kind of interaction with God. So the person isn't just babbling, he or she is actually having a conversation in a special prayer language with God. So according to 1 Corinthians 14, the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues is the gift of that kind of prayer language. That's what it is. Now look at verse 4. In verse 4, Paul draws out the contrast between tongues and prophecy. The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So tongues are for my personal benefit, while prophecy is for the benefit of the whole community of faith. So tongues is about me, while prophecy is about you. And that's why Paul says what he says in verse 5. I want you all to speak in tongues. I want you to have that personal benefit, but even more, I want you to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Okay, so here in this first paragraph, Paul is saying that tongues are good. He's not anti-tongues. But he's also making it abundantly clear that prophecy is far better. And why is prophecy better? Because prophecy builds up the whole church. Because again, what is the point of power tools? Is it to run around the yard? Or is it to build stuff? purpose is construction. It's for building up the church. And you can do a lot more building up with prophecy than you can with tongues. Okay, so that's paragraph one. Now in the three paragraphs that make up the rest of our text today, what Paul does is he lays out three important principles for actually using these power tools in the church. And we see the first principle in verses six through 12. And this principle has to do with intelligibility intelligibility. What Christians do when we gather together for worship needs to be intelligible, needs to be understandable, needs to make sense to everyone in the room. So in verse 6, Paul asks a question. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So it seems like some of the Corinthians, they, were, they wanted Paul to come and to put on a show for them. Hey, Paul, come here, speak in tongues for us, put on a show. And so Paul pictures his next visit. He imagines, hey, I'm going to come to Corinth, and I'm going to do that. Well, what would happen? I'll just speak in tongues the whole time I'm with you. How does that go? And he says, what good would that be to anyone? If he's speaking to God in his private prayer language, how would anyone in the church understand or benefit from it? And then he goes on in verses 7 through 11 to give three illustrations of this point. He talks about musical instruments, military trumpets, and foreign languages, which all have this in common. If the sounds they make don't communicate clearly, then they're just making noise. They're just making noise. And the point is not just to make noise, it's to make music or to call troops to action or to have a conversation. Noise for the sake of noise is obnoxious. 
Nobody needs more noise. What we need is intelligible communication. And so Paul says in verse 12, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, since you want the power tools as I've told you to want them, strive then to excel in building up the church. So don't just take your tools out on the front lawn and rev the engine to make noise. Rather, put them to work to build up the body of Christ. And what that means practically is that your speech, your communication, it needs to be intelligible. It needs to make sense to everyone in the room. Now in the next line, Paul is going to apply this principle specifically to how to use the gift of tongues in the gathered church. But there is a broader principle here, a broader application that we need to recognize here as well. When we come together as a church, when we gather together as a church, what we do needs to make sense. Our gatherings need to be intelligible. And this is why we have a clear order of service each week. We plan in advance what is going to happen when we come together on Sunday mornings. This is why we put lyrics up on the screen to the songs we're singing so that everyone in the room can participate. This is why we aim to make our upfront communication as clear as possible. So for example, when I'm preaching, I try really hard to avoid overly theological or academic language that can be confusing. I stay away from insider words and Christianese. If I need to use a term that's unfamiliar, like this morning, for example, with tongues or prophecy, I'm going to define it really clearly because I want to, make, I want to do my best to make sure that it's understandable because intelligibility matters. What we do when we gather together needs to make sense. That's the first principle. We see the second principle in verses 13 through 19. Not only does intelligibility matter, but so too does intelligence. Intelligence. Paul's emphasis in this next paragraph is on engaging, is on engaging your mind in worship. So in verse 13, he writes, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. Interpretation of tongues is one of the other power tools that is mentioned in uh, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And the gift of interpretation is the ability to actually understand and translate those prayer languages into, uh, in, into everyday language, into, into, nor- into English, for example. Either for yourself or for someone else. So that you and everyone else who's gathered actually knows what's being said. And Paul here says that if you pray in tongues, you have to pray for an interpreter too. And why is that? Well, look at verses 14 through 17. If you're praying in a tongue that even you don't understand, no matter how spiritually enriching that one-on-one connection between you and God might be, at the end of the day, your mind isn't engaged and you don't know what you've been talking with God about. And neither does anybody else. And so if your mind isn't engaged, you might as well be out on the front lawn revving the engine rather than being in a gathering where you're doing that. It doesn't make any sense because nobody is being built up by that. So then pray for the gift of interpretation and then the gift can become useful to the church as a whole. Now in light of what Paul has just written, verse 18 might be a bit surprising. Paul says in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul is saying that he speaks in tongues all the time. He has this gift and he uses it. But look at his conclusion based on that in verse 19. He says, nevertheless, in church, when I'm gathered for worship with other people, 
I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So let's do a little choose your own adventure here this morning. Got a little activity for you, okay? So uh, you've got two choices for next Sunday's worship gathering. All right, two choices I'm going to put in front of you. All right, here's option one. So this sermon this morning that I'm preaching to you right now, this is about 4,500 words. So let's just go ahead and double the length of my time preaching today. And I'm just going to go ahead and step up here next Sunday, and I'm going to speak in tongues for, say, an hour and 15 minutes. I'm going to do that for, for a long time, okay? That's option one for you. Option two is next Sunday, I get up here, and I stand right here, and I just say this. I say, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. Five words. And I sit down and call it a day. Who's going with option one? Anybody? Hands in the air, anybody? Okay, who wants option two? Yeah, and some of y'all are like, can we go with option two every week? Like five words would be great. We'll just stick with that. We'll roll with that all the time, right? So like option two, right, is the obvious choice. And the reason for that is because option two, it engages the spirit and it engages the mind. You can understand what's being said and you can benefit from it. And, that, and that's Paul's point. Worship should always engage both the spirit and the mind. And that actually makes perfect sense within the framework of biblical Christianity. You know, sometimes people think that to be a Christian requires you to turn off your brain and to stop thinking. But the Bible all the way through actually encourages the opposite. In fact, the Bible commands us to turn on our brains. You know, you don't need to think less to be a Christian. You actually need to think more. The greatest commandment offered by God to Moses in the Old Testament and reiterated, reiterated by Jesus in the New is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. With all your mind. And the Christian faith is not based on spiritual experiences. It's actually based on historical facts, things you need to think about. Last week was Easter, and at Easter we celebrated the good news that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Yo, that is a historical event that forms the very foundation of the Christian faith. If it's not true, if you can't think about it rationally, then Christianity has nothing to offer you. If it didn't actually factually take place, then this whole thing is a sham and you should go ahead and head home this morning and find something else to do with your Sunday morning because it is a waste of time for you to be here. But if it did happen, if Jesus did rise from the grave, then that fact has massive implications and you need to apply your mind to think about those implications. See, Christianity claims to be true with a capital T. It claims to be rational and factual, something you can and must think about with your mind. And so worship, when we gather together, it should always engage both the spirit and the mind. And that brings us to the third principle in the final paragraph of our text this morning. Intelligibility matters, intelligence matters, and finally, other people matter. Other people matter. All throughout this passage, Paul has repeatedly emphasized that the power tools are given for the purpose of building up. Seven times, and you can circle this in your, in your Bible, like you can just mark this, go ahead, it's important to notice there. Seven times in this chapter, he uses that word build up. It's all over the place here. And in this final paragraph, he drives the point home. In verse 20, Paul commands his readers to stop being children, 
says, stop playing with your power tools out on the lawn because they sound cool. Instead, in your thinking, be mature. And so how do we do that? How do you be mature in your thinking? Well, you do what he tells you to do in verses 21 to 25. And these verses are super important, but they're also super confusing. And so we're going to go slow through these and walk through them, okay? So walk through this with me. In verse 21, Paul quotes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. And in that passage, Isaiah quotes God as saying, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, to Israel. And even then, Israel will not listen to me, says the Lord. So God said to his Old Testament people that he's going to come and he was going to speak to them in languages they would not recognize on the tongues of foreign invaders. And then even when those foreign invaders came and judgment was at their doorstep, they weren't going to listen. And his point in that was, was, was therefore that those foreign tongues that they don't recognize were going to serve as a sign of God's judgment upon them. Now, when God spoke those words through Isaiah to Israel, he was speaking to people who had been flagrantly and repeatedly rebelling against him for many, many centuries at this point. And they were under God's judgment for the sake of their own rebellion that had lasted for generations and generations. And so then Paul here, in our passage, he takes that idea of tongues being a sign of judgment and he appropriates it for a slightly different purpose. So in verse 22, he says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. And as we look then at verse 22, the question we need to ask is, what kind of sign? What kind of sign are these? What effect do uninterpreted, unintelligible tongues have on outsiders who are visiting the church? Well, look at verse 23. He says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues... So just imagine that the, the wildest dreams of people who are speaking in tongues comes true. And that's what everybody's doing on a Sunday morning. We're all just roaring in tongues. It's happening all over the place. And then you get outsiders or unbelievers. You get visitors who are coming and they're checking out the church and exploring the Christian faith. And they show up and they walk in as that's happening. What are they, how are they going to respond? What's the effect going to be? Well, Paul says, will they not say that you were out of your minds? Like those people are going to think we're all nuts. We're crazy. And the implication is that then they're going to leave and they're never going to come back. And in that way, tongues then would function as a sign of judgment upon them. Because tongues would drive them away from the church and away from Christians and away from Christ himself. And that is not what Paul wants. And that is not what God wants. And it's not what we want. See, the church is to be a place of welcome for outsiders, not a place of judgment. And that's why Paul so limits and discourages the use of tongues in the gathered church here in this passage. Paul wants the church to be this space of hospitality. He wants it to be a place where people can come and can encounter Jesus and can understand what's happening in the gathered church so they can understand the gospel and get to know God himself. And that's what we want to we want to be that kind of place. And that brings us back to prophecy. Prophecy, Paul writes in verse 22, is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. And so imagine that if instead of tongues, if all prophesy on a Sunday morning in a gathering, all prophesy, verse 24, what happens? Well, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, 
The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So Paul says that prophecy, that human report of divine revelation, prophecy reveals the heart and it serves to lead people to God. So in contrast to tongues, which drives people away, prophecy helps make people believers. And church history is full of rich examples of prophecy functioning in this way. I'll share one with you this morning. My favorite comes from Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century English preacher. And Spurgeon actually himself professed to be a cessationist, but I think this story proves otherwise. This comes from Spurgeon's autobiography. And these are the words of a shoemaker describing his experience visiting Spurgeon's church. So this man showed up in church one Sunday morning. And this is what he said. I went to the music hall, the auditorium where the church was gathered, and took my seat in the middle of the place. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me. And in his sermon, he pointed to me. And he told the congregation that I was a shoemaker. And that I kept my shop open on Sundays. And I did, sir. I did that. I should not have minded that part. But he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before. And that there was four pence profit out of it. I did take nine pence that day. And four pence was just the profit. But how he should know that, I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first, I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards, I went, and the Lord met with me, and he saved my soul. He saved my soul. See, that is the kind of thing that happens when the power tool of prophecy gets put to work to build up the church. Believers are comforted and encouraged, and non-believers are drawn to faith in Jesus. And that is why Paul commands us in this passage to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Other people matter to God and to us. And so we want the kind of gifts that will help us to love and serve other people, that will point people toward Jesus, and that will empower us to better build up the body of Christ. Now in verse 13, Paul gives us a hint of what that looks like in practice. And this is your homework today. This is your application. In verse 13, Paul says that if you're lacking a gift you need or want, pray for it. Pray for it. Pray that God would give you the power tools that you need to contribute best to his building project. Pray for the higher gifts, especially prophecy. Pray for it. Now I'll finish with this. Some of you here today, you are the kind of outsiders, the visitors that Paul is even referencing in this passage. Maybe last Sunday or even today is your first time in church ever or in a very long time. And you're here today and you're curious about the Christian faith. And I just spent the last 30 minutes or so talking about tongues and prophecy. And you're sitting here kind of wondering, like, is this what this Christianity thing is all about? Is it all about power tools? Is that what this thing is about? Well, the answer to that, and I hope it's obvious already, the answer to that is no, not at all. What Christianity is all about is not power tools. It's not all about spiritual gifts. It's not about experiences. What Christianity is all about is Jesus Christ. See, we are builders who happen to be given some power tools for the jobs he gives us, but he is the foundation on which we build. 
He is the only foundation and he is always the foundation. And the truth, the capital T truth that is at the foundation of the Christian faith is this. Jesus Christ left his heavenly home and he moved into our neighborhood. He was fully God and yet he put on the fullness of humanity. He became one of us. He spoke our language so that we could understand who God is and what God is all about. He became intelligible for us. And, through, through, and through, though all throughout his life, he pursued love and he built up others. In the end, his own house was torn down. As we remembered last week on Good Friday, Jesus was crucified and died and was buried. On Good Friday, he laid down his life for you and for me. He took the full weight of our selfish sinfulness upon his shoulders. And he died in our place for our sin because we mattered to him. And then on Easter Sunday, in a historical event that you can go and investigate with your mind, God raised him up from the dead. And today Jesus sits on the throne of his heavenly home, ruling and reigning over all. Church, that is the foundation of the Christian life. Jesus laid down his life to become the foundation for yours. He died for you to build a place for you in God's house forever. And so today, would you build your life on that foundation? Would you build your life on that foundation? Would your heart be convicted? Would you fall on your face and would you worship our great God? Now we're going to transition here into a time of communion. And communion, or the Lord's Supper, is a time where Christians throughout the ages have remembered with our minds and our spirits and with our very bodies that foundation of the Christian faith. A few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. This meal is a family meal for all those who have trusted in Jesus and are building their lives on his foundation. And if that's you, I'd invite you to come forward and take this meal and remember with your whole being what Christ has done for you. And if that's not you yet today, if you have not yet believed in Jesus, if he's not the foundation of your life, then we'd ask you to let this pass you by. But we'd also ask you to consider with your mind and with your spirit and with your whole being what it would mean for you to join God's family. And we would invite you, if you make that commitment, maybe today would be the day where you would put your faith in Jesus and you would be able to come and partake and enjoy this meal and celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with us. I'm going to pray. If you need prayer today, there will be deacons up, up front here. I'd invite you to come and pray with them. I'm going to pray for us, and the table will be open. Come and join us, and let's remember together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, your small, for, for this time together this morning. We thank you for the many gifts that you give us. God, I do earnestly desire that you would pour the higher gifts out upon us. Give us the gifts of prophecy. Give the gifts of tongues in our, in our own individual prayer lives. Give us the gifts of healings and miracles and the higher gifts. Give us those kind of gifts that we might experience the fullness of what you have for us and we might be able to best build up the body of Christ. God, would that be our heart that we want to serve you, we want to honor others, we want to build up others. So we pray for those gifts. 
But most of all today, we praise you. Praise you for Jesus Christ, for his life, death, and resurrection, for the hope and the life that we have in him and him alone. And would we be a people who are marked above all by his life in us. As we come to the table, help us to remember with all of our being who you are and what you've done for us. We give you praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.